0: and the Motorcycle Radio Show, Episode 3, Oral Resume. Uh, First thing I want to say is that um, I've really kind of changed my approach to um, the podcast. And it initially started out with me reading. I was nervous. And I realized that people read my blog, mindandthemotorcycle.com, because of certain, like an informality in, in how I write. Um, And I need to keep that same sense of informality when I speak. So going forward, that's what we're going to hear. Anyway, this is about, um, and if I say anyway too many times, please let me know. Uh, I got my first job when I was in the sixth grade. I was a waiter at a delicatessen on Fresh Meadow Lane, which was real close to my elementary school, which was PS 173. Um, all my friends would come there, and every day they would have hot dogs and fries. I got paid 50 cents a day, and I, I was maybe like 12. You know, to, to, to get that kind of money when you're a kid, it, to me it was like a really big deal. And the guy would give me like a, a, you know, a, a half a dollar piece, and it was like, I was rich. And um, from that point forward, I really liked the idea of, of making money and being independent. Following that, uh, I got a job at a men's clothing store uh, up on Union Turnpike in Queens. And it was called Turnpike Men's Apparel. The two guys who ran it, Al and Milt, were just really lovely guys. And they treated me like a grown-up, which was mind-blowing. After a while, uh, I knew how to gift wrap. Uh, I could guess your waist and your inseam. It was really a wonderful experience for a kid. And I really got hooked on the idea of making my own money. And when I was a little bit older and uh, in high school, I spent a couple of summers um, out at a place called Lido Beach on Long Island at a beach club. And I think its name was the Shelbourne. Um It created, it, it catered primarily to Jews. And you'd have to appreciate back then um, that if it was golf courses or any kind of things for affluent people, uh, Jews were pretty much excluded. So they kind of created their own places. My first summer out there, I lived in Greece in oil. I made hot dogs and fries, uh, and it was great for my complexion. The second summer, um, I was something called a locker boy. And I would, these lockers were lit, literally that. People would rent them for the, for the summer, and it was like their piece of sand, and I would cater to them. In my senior year in high school, I got a job at a really depressing place um, out in Rockaway Beach. Um, and it was a, a place, it was a kind of a, now that I guess they would call it assisted living, back then it was an old age home, and you had a bunch of old people sitting on inner tubes, drinking warm, uh, warm milk, and kind of waiting to die. Then in the uh, in the early sixties, um, in sixty two, um, I went to I started going to Queen's College, and I don't know when you're you're kind of that age, eighteen or so, when you're going to college. You think you're a hell of a lot smarter than you actually are, and I wasn't. In uh, sixty four, I, I got one of my wonderful jobs. I worked at the World's Fair, and uh, I worked for Greyhound. I drove a golf cart, which was called an escorter, and it was essentially, um, it really was essentially a golf cart, and there was a couch in the front um, with, like, a taxi meter, and it was nine bucks an hour, and it really catered to wealthy people, and I drove all over the World's Fair. They don't have World's Fairs anymore, but they were really fascinating places where countries and major corporations spent a lot of money... On these buildings and shows that that they put on. Uh, Anyhow, um, I got laid off uh, toward the end of the summer and my friend Neil and I decided that we were going to transport a vehicle to the West Coast. Back then people paid money to have their car driven like to California and they would fly. And we were both too young. You had to be 25, and we weren't even 21 at the time. We put an ad in the paper, and we got one response from an unbelievable character who we will call Stanley. He lived up near Columbia University. And I remember with Neil, we uh, walked up, God, maybe five flights of the walk-up, knock on the door, and we hear something like, Yes! Um, And Stanley was kind of like a, um, a homosexual gazelle. He was maybe six, three, six, four and he was not shy um, about you know who he was. The drive right through the heart of America was unbelievable and it's really for, for another time. But I don't know if you can imagine walking like in Kansas City with this guy who's like six three, six, four. he's flaming his arms around. he's hissing like a snake. And he could care less about people that were looking at him. It was really an unbelievable experience. And for another time, okay? Um, Shortly after that, when um, I was in school in the the fall of 64, I I got a job uh, working the Johnson-Goldwater election. That's Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater. Uh, For most of you, who are those guys? Uh, anyhow, it was really a fascinating um, election time, and I, was, I just fell in love with being around the studio, um, I got coffee for these two uh, news icons by the name of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, they were very much like Walter Cronkite. Anyway, I, I fell in love with the whole idea of the broadcast industry, and it took me quite a while, but I actually ended up getting a job as a page, and a page is kind of like an usher, and I worked all the television shows, but my main job, I worked the Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was in New York. Every afternoon, i take the F train, um, and i go to the studio, and very often, I would work backstage holding the dressing room keys, and everybody who was alive uh, and an entertainer um, in the late 60s, came through that show, including the Rat Pack. And that's Sinatra, Joey Bissop, uh, Dean Martin had their dressing room Cause It was a wonderful experience. Um, and I, right in that period, uh, the Vietnam War was really cooking up. And I had lived through my college deferments, which really don't exist now. So I went from being, God, I forget what it was, but anyhow, I became 1A, which sounds like prime time, and I was going to be drafted, and I really didn't want to be drafted, and I didn't um, have a rich father like our president, so I couldn't get off with having bone spurs in my heel. I went to, uh, all the way to Staten Island, and if you're a New Yorker, Staten Island is might as well be like another planet. Uh, But I I had to go to Staten Island to find a reserve unit. And it was something called the Army Security Agency. Normally, if you were in the National Guard in the reserves, you went on active duty for four months, and then you served for six years. Um, I uh, was on active duty for around 10 months. Um, I had a top-secret clearance. So there was like FBI guys in raincoats walking around my neighborhood. They were walking around NBC trying to, you know, determine if if I was a security risk. Really weird time. And back then, when you were uh, drafted, whether it was in the military or the reserves, when you got out, if you had a job before, your company was required to hire you back. So when I came back, NBC was obligated to give me a job. I guess this is where the story of my employment actually begins. Whoa, 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 Larry. You had me in Vietnam. There's more? Uh, For the millions of you in the listening audience, uh, we actually have a live audience for uh, this program and for the ones uh, following. We have an audience of one. Uh, He goes by the name of Foster. Hey, how you guys doing? Um... It right in the middle of the, of the Viet. It was like um, I got out of school in in 66. Um, and uh, it was prime time for uh, the Vietnam War. Okay. And uh, um, I again, as I mentioned, I had to go to Staten Island. And I found something called the Army Security Agency. And man, it took some doing to get in. And um, I was away for 10 months um, and then had six years of meetings. Um, and during that time. Um, I actually wore a wig, uh, I, uh, because it was a time for long hair, and I let my hair grow, uh, like a lot of guys did, I shaved the back of my neck, and I would put my hair up, and, and put it under a really ugly short wig, so, um, and then, and that's the probably the uh, extent of my, of my army stories, uh, you know, at least for now, so uh, we can get right back to work. Uh, I was hired back at NBC in a department called Station Clearance. And it was very simple. Uh, Station Clearance uh, made sure that all of the affiliates, which were independently owned uh, television stations, carried the network programs when they were supposed to. So you had to kind of make sure they all carried Bonanza on Sunday at, at 8 o'clock. I stayed there for a while. It was it was For me, as a young guy, it was quite something. I wore a suit. I had an office with windows, um, I had a secretary, I was really cool, and I was very young. We were having problems with one of the shows that wasn't being carried by a lot of people. It was a it was a soap opera and it was awful. I don't remember the name, but love was somewhere in the name because every soap opera had love yeah. in its name. They do, right? Yeah. All right. So for the next 10 years, between 1971 and 81. I worked at a bunch of ad agencies in a department called uh, programming, and this was pre-computer. So the idea of programming back then, when television initially started, advertisers would own the shows. So you would have something called like the Lucky Strike Hit Parade. And this was kind of a vestige of that time when, you know, the advertisers would own the shows. It had long since gotten past that, and now what advertisers were doing was paying thousands of dollars for 30-second commercials in all the different programs. And at the ad agencies, I was responsible for placing their advertising dollars into the, into the shows. The first place I went was a place called Young and Rubicon. And again, I was really feeling uh, full of myself. It was like, whoa. I, and they used to say, you worked in the business. So in New York, it, it really meant you worked in the advertising business. I went from Y&R... ...to an outfit called Ogilvy & Mather. And again, my responsibility increased, made more money... ...and then I moved on to a place called Doyle Dane Burnback... uh, ...and I was really feeling cool... ...until um, I got fired in an industry-wide cutback... ...right around Thanksgiving. I don't remember the year and it doesn't really matter. I went up to the personnel office floor. Everybody's dressed in black... uh, ...and they kind of read me my rights... And I was out of work with maybe, ah, a couple of weeks' pay. Goodbye. And while I was out of work, and I was living um, in Glen Cove, Long Island, in a house I couldn't afford, and I had a phenomenal story that involved the mafia. That would be the mafia. Um, I was really needed money. A friend of mine said, I know somebody. We can get a bunch of tapes and cassettes and LPs that kind of fell off the truck. Uh, and we can make a lot of money. Anyway, it's a long story, and you know, and really not for now. This was right around the time of the of the Godfather, and I kind of had flashes of being like the Al Pacino character in Godfather 2. Very delusional. I actually had a conversation with some guy and said to him that if he didn't do what I wanted him, I could get him killed. And the sad thing is it was true. Anyway, we moved on from there and I ended up finally getting a job at another ad agency called Danza Fitzgerald Sample. I worked there for six years and and actually got something called profit sharing, which for me was like a miracle that I had this like money in the bank and it was mine just for staying. Around 82, I got a job with uh, the USA Cable Network. Back then, in the early 80s, cable networks were really in their infancy, and boy, it was a tough sell. But I did realize early on uh, that because of my iconoclastic leanings, I was kind of getting penalized, and my buddies would come in vice presidents at agencies and all of that, and I really wasn't because I kind of walked to the tune of a different drummer. So I got involved with cable networks. And while um, at the USA Cable Network, I took my profit sharing from Dancer and I bought a bar. I bought a bar that we named Flickers. It was in a town called Easton, Pennsylvania, which was kind of like a broke down coal mining town. The entire downtown was boarded up and we put a bar there and we painted it purple and it was the motif was silent movies. It laid a massive egg. Moving right along. Um, Over the next few years, I I worked at a couple of other uh, cable networks, one called the Financial News Network and the other one called the Weather Channel. And before I left uh, New York City, my last job was a vice president, which made my mother proud. I was vice president of advertising sales at a company called All American Television. And they distributed television shows all around the country and retained some of the commercial time, it was called barter. And I sold uh, barter time um, on behalf of them. And what was fast happening was, I was just kind of running out of tricks, and I had to get out of the circus, and it was time to move on. Uh, in 1987, I headed west to Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's another long story, we're not gonna do it now. I bought a little adobe, I call it a little adobe womb, south of town. And I, I was able to buy it because I had a brilliant accountant who was able to recapture all the money I lost at that purple disaster called Flickers. And I, I bought a terrific house um, south of Santa Fe. and It was really wonderful. Um, as soon as I got there, um, I got a job working on a John Huston film festival that took place in the fall of 87. And the, one of the many things that was wonderful about it. I got to meet all sorts of terrific people. That weaved in and out of my life for the 15 years that I was in Santa Fe. Okay, okay, Larry. Let's recap this. <laughs> oh my God. What an interesting guy. Hey, so you were a waiter. And then your, your friends came and got Frank and fries. You made 50 cents a day. Which I can't even fathom. Uh, After high school, you spread your wings, you catered to Jews, you fried in oil, your your complexion was uh, benefited from that. Uh, You ended up going to the Queens College in the early 60s. You ended up working at the World's Fair because you were feeling a little smarter than you were. Uh, You worked for the Greyhound, Johnson and Goldwater. You worked for Johnny fucking Carson. Are you serious? I can't believe that. A stint in the Army Rangers or the Army Reserves. Um, and Then... After that lucky strike you spent millions of dollars in advertising like I can keep up man keep it coming there's more. We have been we, we've um, yes oh, uh, God. And, um, uh, and by the way uh, in my in my best um, Oprah, um, all the audience guests, which would be Foster get absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, anyway uh, that, that was my and I said anyway again I apologize uh, that was my time in, you know, in New York. And um, my leaving and everything involved, there was a lot of it that was, you know, quite you know quite emotional and very powerful and really not for this moment. So, right after working on the, the John Huston Film Festival, a buddy of mine that I met when I was a page got me a job uh, with McGraw-Hill, which was a major publisher in New York City. And my job was to create a magazine in New Mexico called Careers, which was all about college graduates getting jobs within the state. And it was really fascinating, and I met all sorts of people. And then uh, my friend got canned from McGraw Hill, and that ended my magazine career. And moving right along, in my initial travels there, I met a really wonderful, talented writer. And... He got me involved in his company, which was called Lotus Press. He was really gifted and uh, recorded books on tape and wrote books about Native American culture. And it was just a, a wonderful and just an awfully nice guy. And the other part of the company was involved with something called Ayurvedic healing, which was now which is now quite popular and back then eh, not so much. Um, I did the best I could. And it really didn't work work out all that well, so we keep right along on the journey. Uh, As a result of, this is a great story, as a result of the relationships I made at the film festival, I ended up promoting a major concert series in the summer of 1989. It was called Music in the Pines. It was staged on the side of a mountain on the way to the ski basin. I was the promoter. So I booked the acts, I hired the people, I was the idiot that got on stage in front of everybody um, and introduced the acts, and it was an unbelievable experience, incredibly colorful. Uh, the biggest name we had for the, for the music in the Pines was Bonnie Ray, and I would love to talk about it more, but we only have so much time. So uh, in my living out uh, south of town, Um, I befriended a a volunteer fireman, and I became one, actually. Uh, I was a volunteer fireman with the Turquoise Trail Volunteer Fire Department, which was a story unto itself. Uh, One of the guys there that I befriended connected me with a friend who owned a British record label called Run River Records. Um, I spent the next several years getting distribution for the label, which was really actually quite an accomplishment, considering I didn't know anybody. The, the owner uh, had a, a Hemingway complex, and at some point after a couple of years, he ended up pickling his liver and passed on. Okay, listen, here's the deal. Um, Forster just stopped me and said... Uh, He's just blown away by my story to this point. Oh, yeah. And it's... Uh, thank you. And it's it's enough for now. So we're going to do something really terrific. Uh, this is part one of my oral resume. And the following week, we're going to pick up in uh, the stories, really the stories in um, in New Mexico um, after what I just talked about and going forward uh, into uh, Kauai and all of that. They're really great. So... Um, too much of a good thing can easily become a bad thing, and I don't want to do that, so I, I really, I, I thank you so much for listening, and a few closing words, read my stories at mindandthemotorcycle.com. Thank you for listening. Until next week, same time, same station.